Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. It is here, another weekend, another daylight saving season, biting the dust, which means it's probably time to bring this gem back. What is time? What is time? What is time? What is time? Yes, that is me slowly losing my mind on the floor of my bedroom closet. Don't worry, that was from peak pandemic insane times. Everything's fine. It's all totally cool. Every day is Monday. Today's show is going to be a fun one. A social scientist who studies happiness talks about why your profession shouldn't be your personality. So when I ask people, do you think your work is your life? And if the answer is yes, that means that if you lost your work, it would be like dying. Then, farmer chef Abra Behrens tells us about her lovely new cookbook, Grist. Is a pot of beans going to, like, change your life? Maybe not, but maybe. And um, (laughs) in the same way that everything that happens on a given day changes your life a little bit. But first, let's check in at the end of the week with two of our favorite panelists. With us today, we have Jacoby Cochran, who hosts the CityCast Chicago podcast. Jacoby, hey. What's up, Greta? How you feeling? I'm all right. How are you? I'm doing well today. There are so many things to complain about, and I'm excited to take part in the complaining. Perfect. Also, here is the host of Jill Afternoons on Vocalo. Jill, what do you want to complain about? Oh, how much time you got, Greta? (laughs) What is time? I'm telling you. Okay, so I want to start with the fact that Daylight Savings Time ends this Sunday. We're falling back. That means we're going to have more light in the morning, but less in the evening. I feel like people always complain about daylight savings time ending because it, you know, will get dark at like 4 p.m. or whatever. But I am one of those people who like I'm waking up at seven and it is like nighttime and it is driving me insane. This is a hill that I will die on. I think the whole daylight savings situation is trash. I'm excited to get back to whatever normal time is. What are your feelings about it, Jill? I mean, I feel like you're definitely more of like a nighttime activity person than I oh, am. Oh, yeah. When I hosted the morning show on Vocalo, mm. Daylight Savings was my number one arch nemesis. I was already getting up before the sun. And now we're just doing that thing where do we want it to be dark before we go to work or dark after we get out of work? And I think the real question is why are we working so long that we don't get to see the sun? <laughs> I think that's a very fair question. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, over the last, I don't know, six or so years, 29 states have introduced legislation to abolish resetting the clocks. Hawaii and Arizona have already said fuck it to the whole thing entirely. Uh, Jacoby, what do you think? Should we be giving up on this weird situation? I've heard so many different explanations that it had to do with like farming in the 1700s mm-hmm. and that it was rooted in like getting people more productive to work, which anything that's trying to get people to work more, right, I'm right. like, fuck it. I don't like that. <laughs> I'm not interested. But it does suck that it's going to be nighttime at three o'clock because that impacts my walking. And as a black man, 
you know, having to deal with more darkness mm-hmm. when I'm just trying to like walk around the city uh, is something I got to take into consideration. So, uh, yeah, you know, fuck daylight savings. It, it just seems inconvenient at this time. I like the idea of just zooming the question out instead of like, like maybe daylight savings isn't conversation at all. It's about we should be talking about a 30 hour work week, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like it's going to be a lot of critique of capitalism in this episode. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, I guess speaking of capitalism, we're just going to keep going on that trend. Uh, This week, Jennifer Finney Boylan wrote an op-ed for the New York Times. The headline was, Should Classic Rock Songs Be Toppled Like Confederate Statues? I thought this was a really interesting one. She talks about two songs specifically, Don McLean's American Pie, citing the fact that McLean pled guilty to domestic violence. Um, Also, the Rolling Stones song Brown Sugar, which is about slavery. Both songs are 50 years old this year. Jennifer places them in what she calls a reassessment of our many mythologies. Obviously, these aren't the only examples even from that era, let alone, you know, modern day musicians who are hella problematic. Most recently, maybe R. Kelly. We've all, you know, Chris Brown. Like you can name any number of artists. Um, The art versus artist conversation is one that's taken many forms, especially since the Me Too movement. But I do think it's a really interesting one. And it's one we haven't talked about a lot on the show. And Jill, I mean, you are such a music fan. Like, how do you wrestle with this stuff? You know, this I I think about this sort of thing a lot. Like, how often do you absentmindedly just hum along to something because it's playing Mm -hmm. in the grocery store and you don't realize that you know, Neil Young's A Man Needs a Maid is a real problematic song. (laughs) Like Paul Simon was not a great husband. James Taylor was not a great husband. I sang Brown Sugar in a crowd in front of the Metro and was like, "Mm -hmm, see, see how weird it is coming out of a black woman's mouth. (laughs) And I, I think it's a fair thing to say that you've never thought about it like that, because when you're just, you know, bopping along in traffic, playing drums on your steering wheel, you're not necessarily looking into critical race theory and we're having this conversation with comedy and stuff like that too where we have to acknowledge that social mores aren't the same now as they were in the 60s and 70s and if we're gonna do a blanket sweep of every musician who's had you know something to be concerned about then we're going to be listening to like gregorian chants solely for the rest of our lives them gregorian chanters they were some <laughs> some problematic fuckers as well <laughs> we don't right? know there was a lot of persecution <laughs> there was a lot of Thank wrongful you. burnings <laughs> i grew up listening to classic r&b classic soul modern and classic hip-hop and i grew up skating to james brown but the, the story of James Brown as a man is, you know, also a, a philander and a domestic abuser. And I think while we have to also put these artists in a pile, reevaluate these songs and ex- accept how problematic and toxic um, our artistry has been, we also have to turn this mirror on ourselves as a society. And that's a conversation we've been less willing to have and to say, no, it wasn't just an artist putting out a song about pedophilia and rape. It was an audience listening to accepting, encouraging songs about pedophilia and rape. R. Kelly's discography has shot up in the wake of these allegations and cases. And so we have, we can't separate artists from artistry and we can't separate artists from society Mm. and, and audience. And, you know, I grew up watching Eddie Murphy and I remember going to college, 
you know, it's the first time I'm really around white people. It's the first time I'm around members of the queer community, uh, 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 trans peoples, non-binary. And I remember just wanting to show them my freshman year, like, I want to show y'all a little about me, who Kobe is. And I put that on. And then he gets to the part when he starts making not only controversial, but just piss poor commentary about the AIDS epidemic. Mm. And at this time, I'm 18 years old. I don't know shit about the AIDS epidemic. Mm. It would be years until I really got an understanding of, of what took place. And yet I watched as people who had a better understanding, who had different experience, they took in those jokes and I watched yeah. the hurt that came on their face. And as they looked back at me and they questioned me and who I was and what I thought was funny. And in that moment, I couldn't be defensive. I couldn't say, oh, y'all don't think this shit is funny. Y'all ain't from Chicago. Y'all know black folks. Y'all know y'all. I had to accept that this wasn't not only their comedy, but this comedy in itself, it, mm -hmm. it punched down. I know it feels overwhelming for people to think that all they got left is Gregorian chants and, oh, I can't say nothing and I can't listen. to. It's not about that. It's about trying to be more inclusive, trying to make more people feel joy. And it's OK to to to, to persecute the things from the past. I, I'm OK with that. I think I think it's necessary. Yeah. And it's growth. Yes. Growth is the word I was thinking of, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you are a creator, if you consider yourself an artist, I think growth and learning are priorities one and two, right? You can't create well without looking inward. And also, like, let's be real. There's stuff that you're going to enjoy in the privacy of your own earbuds that you aren't going to play at the club because you know better. Like, I don't believe in a guilty pleasure because you think other people don't like it. <laughs> like, a guilty pleasure is like, I legitimately feel guilty for listening to this. <laughs> I should not be doing this. I know I should not be doing this. God damn. Just let me do it. <laughs> Okay, so for this next topic, um, I want to talk about the intersection of life and work, which obviously we've already been talking about, I think, over the last couple topics. But um, I would love for us to listen to this interview I did about it, and then I would love to hear your take. So the other day, I got to chat with Arthur C. Brooks. He's a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School of Management and the host of the podcast How to Build a Happy Life. And he recently wrote an article in The Atlantic about the blurring lines between work and life, and it caught my attention. So we met up on Zoom to talk about it. And this guy went straight for the jugular. Hi, Greta. How are you? Is your profession your personality? Like, wow, Arthur. Very quickly, it became clear that our conversation was also kind of a surprise potential intervention. You're running a, the nerdette I know, know, man. Radio show. Obviously, this is your passion. <laughs> it's so funny because I was like, how much should I make this about me? But we just went there. It just happened. It's about you. Look, I read a column on happiness for the Atlantic. This is all about you. The piece I wanted to talk to Arthur about was called A Profession is Not a Personality. And I thought it was super thought provoking. I mean, is it really an automatic red flag if your profession also happens to be your passion? Asking for a friend. As a social scientist, I can tell you that there are really only four things that will bring you happiness that are your faith or your philosophical life, if mm -hmm. you're secular, having a, a broad philosophical basis for the big things in life, family, friendship, and then work that serves other people, to be sure. But when work is taking over everything else, what it does is it kind of desiccates your life and you, you, you tend to self-objectify. 
you become kind of a, a workaholic or a success addict to a certain extent, and it becomes impossible for you to attain your happiness under the circumstances. So when I ask people, do you think your work is your life? And if the answer is yes, that means that if you lost your work, it would be like dying. And that's a big problem. Yeah, that's heavy. That does remind me of something that my therapist and I have talked about, which is the idea of sort of like the pie and how many slices of pie are taken up. You know, like what percentage of the pie is work versus life, you know, outside work versus like friends and hobby? Like how are you spending your time in any given day even, you know? Yeah, for sure. And the key thing to understand about addiction, whether it's to gambling or to uh, to fentanyl or to pornography or to work, which is workaholism, is that it's a relationship. It substitutes for real human relationships. So you basically, in your life, you have a, a certain number of parking spots uh, in your life. And, and when you're addicted to something, whether it's a chemical addiction or a behavioral addiction like work, it's like taking a semi-trailer and parking it diagonally across all of your parking places. And the, the, the reason that this is a really big problem is because it means that nobody else can get in. And when nobody else can get in, you're going to get lonelier and lonelier and lonelier. The main reason that people are very, very depressed and anxious when they're addicted to their work or to drugs and alcohol or anything else is because they're desperately lonely. They're lonely because their addiction is taking the place of all of their other relationships. Okay, so what about for someone who's listening right now and who's like, and maybe it's not even a semi truck, right? Maybe it's just like a big ass van or something. Yeah. But they're sort of like, okay, this is hitting close to home. Like, what do you suggest that people do to help address this? Well, there's a lot of different things that people will talk about clinically. But the first thing to understand is that you need to face what's happening and to ask yourself, what would happen to me if I didn't have this work? Now, most ordinary people are not workaholics. And they would say, well, if I didn't have this job, well, that would be inconvenient. I'd have to get a new job. Mm -hmm. But if you're a workaholic, you're like, my life would have no meaning. (laughs) And so the first thing, and you know, these are people who, by the way, are doing all these classic uh, behaviors of, of addicts, like their partner leaves for 15 minutes to go to the store on Sunday, and they, Mm. they, they sneak out their laptop. Mm-hmm. Right. Just check your email real quick. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> or, you know, you're peeking at your at your messages or something during dinner and the kind of thing that makes your partner feel not valued, because in point sure. of fact, this is your partner's competition is this. Right. So the key thing is this. Number one is that knowledge is power and, and learning to face the truth. The second thing is to actually start cultivating what you really should be cultivating, because what you need is love. And your work is not going to give you love. It isn't. It's going to give you adventures and it's going to give you applause. And it's going to get, I mean, look, I mean, you're, you've got this famous radio show and people are like, oh, she's awesome. Greta's awesome. She's smart and the whole thing. (laughs) And you get all this applause and all that, but that's not Greta. That's not love. No, you need love. And so actually start asking for it and looking for it and getting it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know though. Like what, what do people do if they really do genuinely love their jobs? Like, I mean, I think I'm in that category, you know, like, and I honestly, I mean, you talk about like philosophical belief, like working for a nonprofit media organization, I do like is really important to me, you know, like, I think that's really cool. Yeah, no, I, to love your job is, I understand that's an expression, but Mm -hmm. remember that love is only for people. Love is only for people. And, you know, this like, so there's this old thing where they would say, there's this formula that the world gives you that if you want to be, have a happy, successful life, you need to basically love stuff, use people and worship yourself. 
but the truth of the matter is that you need to change the verbs and nouns around. You should use things, love people and worship the divine. That's it. Mm-hmm. And any, any other formulation just doesn't work for happiness. And so to begin with, I often say I love my job because look, Greta, I study happiness for a yeah, living. Yeah, you get it's, to do pretty cool shit over there. Yeah. It's awesome. It's super interesting. It's super fun. I mean, I'm talking, I'm helping people all day long, but I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my friends. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that, that's what I actually love. And remembering not to conflate the concept of love between things and people is really important. I feel like we all have this habit when we meet new people where the first question we ask is, so what do you do? Yeah. And I, I wonder how much that feeds into a lot of what you're talking about with this stuff. Like, should we be asking a different question? Actually, yes. And and it's interesting as, a, as an icebreaker to say, what do you do? But always follow it up if you want to blow people's minds. Follow it up with why. Why? <laughs> right? It's like, so, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a professor at Harvard. Well, that's great. Why? why are you you a professor at harvard (laughs) well and 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 it's super lame if the answer the the only answer you can give is because because harvard hired me and i'd be stupid to say no yeah that's not right for many years i was a classical musician i made my living as a french horn player um in the barcelona symphony for a long time why and because man because it's it's because i fell in love with a girl in barcelona (laughs) and i went to barcelona trying to close the deal Nice. I did. And and we've been married 30 years next oh. on, on November 6th. It's unbelievable. That's amazing. It's the best thing ever. It's love. So I don't, how much do you think the pandemic may have changed some of these dynamics? Uh, it's been interesting because for some people, it made them focus in on what really mattered a lot. I know a lot of people, for example, and I've, I've counseled a lot of people who say, <clears throat> I thought that I wanted to live in a sexy place like New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turns out that I that's not very important to me because I'm living in New York city, stuck in my one room apartment, zooming into my job. And actually I, I, my whole life, I wanted to get away from Scranton PA because Scranton PA is gross and boring and all that. But you know what? The people I love are there and I'm (laughs) Mm. moving back. And so some people, the, the coronavirus epidemic has forced them into making the decisions about their lives that are very, very healthy. For other people, they've, they've absolutely tripled and quadrupled down on the workaholism. That and, and part of the reason is because for a lot of us, it's been incredibly rewarding for our productivity. I mean, you think about it. It's like I got a whole book. I got a new book written during the coronavirus epidemic that I wouldn't have been able to write. I started a weekly column during the coronavirus epidemic. I was able to become so unbelievably productive. It's phenomenal. But the truth is I'm giving everybody else advice. This is not research. This is me search. Um, you know, I have become a work machine and I have to be really careful about that. Yeah. I think mine has actually gotten better since I've been working from home. Tell me more. How come? Well, I think a lot of it was the pace of living in Chicago was something that I was pretty proud of myself for having adjusted to as a person who grew up in Alaska. Mm. But I think once I stopped having to like hustle in the way that I did before in terms of even just like getting ready for work in the morning and like, you know, getting my lunch together and making sure I walked the dog and getting out the door on time and then traffic and all of it. I'm just so much more relaxed than I was before. Yeah, that's good. That's good that you're able to do that and, and and define yourself. One of the things that I recommend to people that they do, by the way, is that there's a tendency to say in every conversation to talk about the things that we miss from before the coronavirus mm-hmm. epidemic and to talk about the things that we don't like from the coronavirus epidemic. But that's actually the wrong way to look at it. We should look in these other quadrants um, of the things that we didn't like from before and the things that we do like now you want to hold on to yeah. and the things that we don't want to go back to, quite frankly, Greta, there's a ton of stuff that like 
those toxic relationships, those people that treat you, you know, in a way that, or they bring out the worst in you and you were able to put on hold those relationships. This is your opportunity to not go back to lots and lots of stuff. Well, and like these neon pink yoga pants, dude, are just like really phenomenal. You're wearing them too? Unbelievable. (laughs) I mean, leggings aside, though, like one thing that I do really want to hold on to is a flexibility to be able to work from home. So many companies are, you know, kind of having that conversation about what it'll look like to return to the office. Do you think that people who have the ability to work from home should go back to work like in a building? So here's the big problem that a lot of people are having. They've been sitting home for a long time, working from home, working with Zoom, which is a very depressing way to work because you can't make good eye contact. They're very lonely. They're exhibiting symptoms of anxiety and depression. They don't know that. It's impairing their, their executive function and giving them a lot of inertia to want to stay at home. So mm-hmm. a lot of people who say, it's comfortable. The yoga pants I got, <laughs> right? Or, or no pants. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's the best, right? Because yeah. I'm comfortable. But you know what? You know, when 85% of Americans have picked up weight and are less in shape and 30% of Americans exhibit symptoms of clinical depression, it is time for us to go back. Hmm. I don't like to hear that, Arthur. I know, I know, I know it's bad. I know because, you know, it's like I live, you know, I I walk downstairs to my little home studio and I do my work. Or That's I could so nice. drive three hours and 45 minutes through, yeah, you know, five right? miles of traffic in Boston and, oh. and, and wish I were dead every single day. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> I got There's the data. I got the ground. data. <laughs> There's got to be a middle ground. I'm the two days a week. That's all I want. Well, what we need is actually more, and we're going to get more flexibility. The truth is we're not yeah. going to go back to the way that we were. And so we need to figure out ways to get out. And part of that is having jobs that are not exclusively online. Okay, fine. (laughs) Arthur, thank you so much. This was such a delightful conversation. Thank you, Greta. I hope that you stay happy. You certainly sound happy to me. As you can tell, Arthur totally called me out in that interview. (laughs) I think I've managed to actually build a pretty healthy relationship with my work. It has taken time. Um, But I don't know. I also think it's really confusing since my job is like a significant part of who I am or yeah, I yes, I'm going to just stand by that sentence at this point. Um, Y'all both host stuff, too. I mean, I think to a certain extent when you're hosting something like you're showing up in a like ideally very authentic and genuine way, which made me wonder, I don't know, like, how do you think your relationship with work informs the rest of your life these days, Jacoby? Like you're making a daily podcast. Yeah. The first job I had coming out of grad school ended up feeling more like 24 seven. And I moved into like acting, hosting and being a professor. But because they're connected to not only as Arthur would say, like my philosophical lens as Mm -hmm. being a professor, somebody who works with students is is trying to help guide them, but also someone who's deeply invested in their art. And now that I host a podcast, you know, even this conversation we're having now, this is work. This is work for us. And at no point in this conversation has it ever felt like work. It's such a gift, but it's so complicated. It, it is really hard because capitalism has happiness linked to productivity. It, you know, City Cash Chicago isn't my personality, but it's a damn good passion. And I definitely have to work to make sure I'm setting good boundaries for myself. Yeah. I thought one thing from the article that Arthur wrote that was really interesting was one of his pieces of advice was to foster friendships with people who don't care about your job. 
which is one that I've been thinking about a lot. And I have this one friend who once told me and we were like sitting at the beach over the summer and she was like, you know, I really forget how ambitious you are. And I was like, well, thank you. so much. <laughs> That's why most of the people I hang out with, I have been friends with for like 20 years when we all worked in the same crappy bar together. Mm-hmm. We've all grown and moved on to, you know, careers and families and jobs and things like that. But at the end of the day, we're just a bunch of kind of screwed up waitresses <laughs> <laughs> who miss the days where you take off your apron, you pull up to the bar, now you're not working anymore. Boom. And there was a great way to set boundaries there. But now I got publicists like sending me emails to my personal emails, mm. calling my phone. And I'm just like, that is 100% where my boundaries <laughs> end. Well, on that note, should we detach? Should we call it? I mean, we all have to go to our jobs. (laughs) (laughs) We do all have a bunch of other stuff to do today. Jacoby, Jill, thank you so much for taking the time. I count both of you as actual friends who I have met through work, and I am delighted by that as well. Oh, Greta, we love you too. Greta, I appreciate you for having me on. Thanks for coming on my show. Jill, it's always good to hear your voice. Man, let's do this in real life soon. In just a minute, Abra Barons waxes poetic about beans, grains, and other shelf staple favorites. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I don't know if y'all remember this, but a couple of years ago now, we had this farmer and chef on to talk about her cookbook, Roughage. And in it, she gushed about cabbage, just gushed. You know, I love things like asparagus or fava beans or shishito peppers, but they feel like friends who come into town for a long weekend and it's so nice to see them. But then it's like... You know, my cabbage is like my, you know, work wife or something. Well, Abra Behrens, the author of Roughage, has a new cookbook out. It's called Grist, and it's a practical guide for cooking grains, beans, seeds, and legumes. Now, based on what I know of her unabashed love for some of the humbler or, as she puts it, more stalwart kitchen staples, I can tell you this is going to be a great cookbook. Abra is here with us now. Abra, welcome back. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for having me again, Greta. I'm just, like, thrilled. I want to be clear. Ruffage wasn't just all about cabbage. It was, like, (laughs) kind of this amazing, like, A to Z list of a bunch of different vegetables. And the idea was... You could go to the farmer's market, see what looks good and is inspiring, and then go home and like look that thing up in the book and make a lovely meal out of it. Um, With this one, you are taking us kind of over to the bulk section. Can you explain to us what's going on with Grist? Yeah. So they're very similar in format because it's how my brain works, which is uh, I tend to cook meals based around ingredients that I'm excited about. And so that's why it's organized by ingredient. And what I I really want out of these books is that 
there's a bunch of information which you can absorb um, as much as you want to. And then hopefully it, it makes it easier for you to not always have to reference the book for like a, you know, follow this recipe to the T. And that, I mean, quite honestly, is because that's what I needed out of a grain resource to say, how long is this going to cook? Because if I need to have dinner in 20 minutes and sorghum takes, you know, 70 minutes to boil, like I'm not going to cook sorghum today, you know, all that stuff. I was telling a friend today, I was like, I'm going to talk to a lady about beans later. And he was like, beans are overrated. And I was like, I'm going to ask Abra how she would respond to that. I mean, what do you think? You must have an answer to people who are like, beans though? You know, I don't know. I mean, sure. Is a pot of beans going to like change your life? Maybe not, but maybe. And um, <laughs> in the same way that everything that happens on a given day changes your life a little bit. Um, and I do think that a lot of people are thinking about beans and legumes specifically as we talk about climate collapse and a movement towards eating less meat. These dried pulses are, are not as energy intensive to move. One kind of common cooking strategy, I think, especially around beans is like, you know, the idea of batch cooking, like you just make a shit ton of beans. But in Grist, I feel like you have a really interesting different approach around like the week without boredom grids. Can you tell us about mm. those? I was thinking about it because my sister, uh, I don't know what she was thinking, but she she made like two gallons of lentil soup one day. <laughs> and and so she texted me like, look at this ridiculous thing that I've done. And then every day I was getting these texts of just like, I am in lentil soup hell. I like hate this lentil soup. I hate everything about lentil. I'm going to throw these away. And I was like, I was like, don't throw it away. Just freeze it. And then when I was writing the book, I was just like, well, wait a second. If she had just cooked lentils, then I think there would be much less tendency towards monotony or boredom. Um, and then fatigue, mm-hmm. <laughs> the dreaded lentil fatigue. Um, and so that's the idea is that batch cooking doesn't have to be take it to the end of an exact recipe, but just prepare the base ingredient. So like for the black beans, I generally cook black beans the same way um, with some smoked paprika, cumin and chili flake. I just like that flavor combination so mm-hmm. much. And so then you've got this big pot of beans in their cooking liquor, their pot liquor. Mm -hmm. And so the first day I would probably just want, you know, several ladles of those stewy beans, maybe with rice and a cabbage salad or... I'm glad cabbage is coming back up. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that would be day one. And then day two... I would probably take just the beans out of that pot and maybe make something like a quesadilla. And then the third day, you know, you have all of this cooking liquid, which is called pot liquor. It's just one of those things that's more than the sum of its parts and it's really delicious. So I would probably make a soup and then you still have a bunch of beans left over. So we're on to day four and I've been also blending them a lot into effectively a hummus. Mm-hmm. There's just so many options and it's all coming out of this one pot. And the point is that, you know, then you're not just eating the same thing every day, hopefully. So I feel like speaking of beans, uh, I was delighted to see in your introduction that you also for sure address farts. <laughs> <laughs> How did that come to be? <laughs> because, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the other reason I think a lot of people don't eat beans is that 
it makes people gassy. You know, there's lots of solutions. My neighbor, Mario Ronda, uses asafoetida and all of his beans and, you know, things like that. Or, I mean, just bask in it. Parts are so funny. (laughs) (laughs) Abra, I feel like I could just talk to you all day. Thank you for writing such a beautiful cookbook and for chatting with me about it. Oh, man. Well, thank you so much for having me on and for your interest and, and all those things. It really means a ton. That's Abra Barron's. Her new cookbook is called Grist. All right, that's it for this week. But real quick, before you go, there is a new and super simple way for you to help support Nerdette. As you know, Nerdette is made here at WBEZ, which is a nonprofit radio station. That means we rely on donations from listeners just like you to help keep Nerdette strong. So anytime you use your debit card to buy a new bag of beans or when you auto pay a monthly bill, you can throw a little change our way. It's super easy to set up. It's very secure and you can set whatever limits you want. A little bit of spare change now will mean a great deal to us here at Team Nerdette and not to mention all your fellow Nerdette listeners. You can find out more by going to wbez.org slash nerd change. Thanks for looking into it. The show is produced by me and Anna Bauman, our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. We will see you next week. What is time? What is time? Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Macs and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.